Hello, people, and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Helen, and I'm Riley, and today is episode seven. We're coming to you from perpetual lockdown. How long have we been here? It's been eighty-four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been at least um, it's been at least three, three months. months. Sorry, that sounds a lot. We made that sound really grim. It kind of is, but I think there's a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel if you look, if you look hard enough. If you if you squint your eyes, <laughs> if you blow your eyes, you can see it. Yeah, for us Melbourne people, at least. Yeah, I guess um, hang in there would mm-hmm. be our message. Um, we're in this together. Keep washing your hands. Keep wearing your mask. I know it's easy to forget and get lax about that hygiene. Because it's been, it's not novel anymore, you know, it's not fun. It's not like, oh, this hand washing, I can make a song up to wash my hands. <laughs> We're not doing that anymore. But you still got to wash your hands and look after your friends and family mm-hmm. and we can get through it. Yeah. Thank you for that PSA, Riz. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so, I thought it was about time that we did a missing kids case because we haven't really done one so far. Today we're covering Samantha Knight, which Riz, you told me about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely up there with one of the like more high-profile abductions in Australia. It's right up there with like William Tyrrell, Daniel Morecambe. Mm. This episode does contain discussion of sexual assault and pedophilia, and as always, listener discretion is advised. You're the best person to know whether or not something like this is for you, so if it's not, That's fine. Dip out now and we'll catch you next week. Great. Yeah, let's jump in. After finishing school on the 19th of August, 1986, nine-year-old Samantha Knight had walked home, waving happily to a neighbour as she arrived at her mother's flat in Bondi. She changed out of her school uniform and had something to eat. Knowing her mother wasn't due home until 6pm, she walked down to the local pharmacy to buy a new toothbrush. And that was the last time she would ever be seen. Samantha Knight was the daughter of Tess Knight and Peter Omar. She initially lived in Manly with her parents, but after their divorce, she moved to the eastern suburbs, where she lived with her mum in a flat in Bondi. Samantha's regular afternoon routine would be to come home from school while her mum was still at work, get changed, have a snack, and go to play with friends until her mum got home at six. This is what she was doing on the afternoon of her disappearance. However, when her mother arrived home from work, Samantha wasn't home. She began to worry and went for a walk to the shops, where she found out that Samantha had been there buying a toothbrush. Samantha was last seen at 5.30pm by a couple of people in the area, standing on Bondi Road in the company of an unknown man. We love a queen that stands oral hygiene. Definitely wasn't my biggest priority when I was nine. Clearly it's not my biggest priority now, because you know how I swapped my toothbrush head recently? (laughs) Yes. That was screwed up. (laughs) My old toothbrush head was like flattened. (laughs) Didn't your new one just made your gums, like, profusely bleed? (laughs) Yes, I was bleeding from the mouth. (laughs) Um, I have an electric toothbrush. And sometimes, you know, it does so much work for you that I forget that I need to be rotating those heads more often. Mm. Um, Samantha would have been rotating her toothbrush heads. She would have. Very regularly. There isn't that much info on Samantha, but I guess from this action we can maybe make the conclusion that she was pretty responsible, Mm -hmm. probably independent. 
to go to the shops alone at nine. Yeah, she didn't have any siblings. Yeah. So she was just the daughter of a single mother, probably. Yeah, probably quite independent. Mm. Posters of Samantha appeared all over Sydney, pleading for information from the public into her disappearance, but nothing came up. Months went by, but Samantha's mother, Tess, never gave up. There's something about that maternal connection, I guess, and mothers just, you know, never getting over a lost child. Not that I would know. Yeah, it just seems like in in all the cases where a child has gone missing or has been killed, you just see that, like, there's just this other level of pain that the, like, parents, but especially their mothers go through. I just could never imagine. Yeah. Tess says that she will never forget the last day she saw her daughter as she waved her off to school and that she would look through windscreens of passing cars, scanning the faces of the children, hoping to see her daughter again. Which is also screwed up. That's That's very sad. Yeah. The police investigation into Samantha's disappearance quickly went cold. After being seen with this unidentified man, there was no trace of her whatsoever. There was nothing or no one in her personal life or the life of her mother that could give the police any leads. So no one came forward. No one. With nothing. Useful, at least. Nothing useful. That was until 1996, after 10 years had gone past. Two seven-year-old girls had told their mothers that the man who was babysitting them, Michael Guider, was sexually assaulting them and taking pictures of them during the assaults. That same year, police were also told by one of Samantha's childhood friends, we'll call her friend A, that Guider had babysat her and Samantha at another friend's house, friend B, in the early 1980s and had sexually assaulted them. Prior to this, Guider had generally been thought of by people in the community as friendly, quote, and he had held relatively stable employment and had had some normal adult relationships. He only had one prior conviction from 1979 where he had set fire to the business premises of his ex-girlfriend and her new lover once their relationship had ended. But this is like that part in our Mr. Cruel case where they released the profile on what kind of person might, you know, be the type to sexually assault or harm children. And yeah. they're never... Yeah, if we go on what the Sierra Files said, then Gaida kind of fits the bill. Yeah, they're always normal, hold down normal employment, jobs, relationships. Normal relationships. Yeah. Yeah, they're unsuspecting. Like they're compensating for doing some dodgy shit. Yeah. Police searched Guider's house and workshed, where they found thousands of photographic slides, negatives, and printed photographs depicting children, including the seven-year-olds who came forward in indecent poses and in the course of being sexually assaulted. He's developing them himself. He must be. Uh, It is the 90s. Yeah. They also found pornographic books and articles and children's underwear and cameras, I have never raised a child, so I don't know if when they're like seven, maybe they're, you know, dressing themselves and and bathing themselves and whatever. But do you think you would notice, like, if your kid keeps coming home with no underwear on? Maybe not, but I thought that he, like, stole or took the underwear when he was babysitting from the houses. Like from the drawers. Or the laundry. Right. Dirty underwear. Um, that would make a lot more sense. Yeah, it is. Than just taking them off the kids. Gotta think, gotta think like a cop or a criminal. Or like a criminal. Oh, okay, Helen. Mm. In 1996, he pled guilty to 60 counts of sexual offences relating to nine girls and two boys over a period from 1980 to 1996. Included in these charges were 15 counts of sexual intercourse without consent, including penile penetration, penetration with a finger, and with objects 
and oral intercourse. He's sentenced for these charges in 1996 to 16 years imprisonment, with a minimum term of 10 years, which would expire in February 2006. I always wondered how they like came up with that number. Who decided on 60? So I think normally they just sort of trawl through all the statements and then just add them up. Right. I guess when you, if you have so many, if you just added a couple more on, he's probably just going to be like, yeah, I was plead guilty to them. He wouldn't bother. Tick it up. Yeah. These convictions only related to the claims made by those two seven-year-old girls. Unfortunately, the allegations made by friend A that connected him to Samantha weren't enough to pursue Guida further in relation to her disappearance, as there was no direct evidence of Guida being involved with this girl or with Samantha even after police interviewed him in connection to her disappearance. In an interview, Guida accepted that he met Samantha once or twice and that he may have photographed her, but that it wasn't in a sexual way. He insisted he had nothing to hide, but that he had made scrapbooks of information on missing children, one of which was about Samantha out of interest for the mysteries, but that he'd thrown it away. You know how murderers and other criminals love to, like, insert themselves in the crime after? Mm. They stick around and, you know, go to the funeral or go to the investigation. Yeah. Just can't walk away. They'd be scrapbooking and stuff. This guy was scrapbooking. This interview was very convoluted and he spent a lot of time rambling about how Samantha may have been kidnapped by aliens or by white slave traders or even that Satanists may have been involved in he Bondi. Was, he was grasping at straws. Yeah. The aliens of Bondi. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> Captain Cook Bondi. Bondi encounters. Among all these rambles, he said that he definitely didn't know anything, but that he thought Cooper Park might be a good place to look for her. Talk about contradicting yourself. Yeah. I don't know anything, but, like, I mean... What about that park? Maybe look in Cooper Park, like, I don't know. He said that he used to spend time there before her disappearance, looking for historical Aboriginal sites, and he thought it might be a good place. Yeah, remember that name, Cooper Park? (laughs) What the heck, dude? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Weirdo. (laughs) After all the leads on Guida dried up, the police established Task Force Harrisville in May 1998 with the intention of getting stronger evidence. Why'd they call it Harrisville? I don't really know too much about this. From my understanding, when they set up a task force or an operation, they kind of go alphabetically mm-hmm. um, and just kind of pick a word, and often it doesn't like really relate at all. Right. Like Sometimes it'll just be a cool word, like right. Operation Spectra. Or, like, something sick sounding. Yeah. Harrisville? Don't know. Uh, I guess they're, they're cooler letters within the letter H. Yeah. Maybe they'd already been done. Task you don't want to double up. Helen. <laughs> <laughs> I'd get it done. <laughs> Just the power of my name would solve the investigation. <laughs> As part of Task Force Harrisville, investigators became aware of a storage unit that was rented by Guider. It was searched in June 1998, and thousands more pornographic negatives and photographs were found, depicting other young girls with their genitals exposed. Thousands. Thousands. Thousands of photos. Not even files. Like, physical four by six. That's stacks. That would be, like, boxes. They also find the scrapbook of Samantha's disappearance, which he said he'd thrown away. That would almost make him a liar. Oh, From these photos, police identified two more victims, 
One of them was friend A, the woman who came forward two years earlier in 1996. And one of them was friend B, whose mother was the key contact with Gaida, who put him in touch with the other girls and allowed him to babysit them at her house. There's one photograph showing the exposed genitals of a girl, but she's unable to be identified. Police are able to talk to friend A again in 1998, where she elaborates more on what had taken place. She told police about games he used to play while babysitting them. One of them was called Statues, where he would make them stand as still as they could while he exposed his genitals and undressed them and touched their genitals. He would also play hide-and-seek with them. The girls hid in different rooms, and he would find one of them and sexually assault her. This continued until he had found and sexually assaulted all three. She said that every time she went to friend B's house, she was assaulted, and that one time friend B's mum invited her over when her friend wasn't even there and it was just Gaida and the mother. The mother then left and Gaida took her into the master bedroom where she was sexually assaulted for over 20 minutes and photographs were taken of her. Police try and talk to friend B and her mother, but neither of them want to talk to the police. It doesn't make that much of a difference because as a result of this investigation, Gaida pleads guilty to eight counts of assault relating to these two girls, and he was sentenced to six and a half years in the year 2000, which only added six months onto his parole eligibility date. So what do these offences look like, and how do they relate to Samantha's disappearance? These two separate legal proceedings give us a pretty good insight into how Gaida committed his crimes. He would befriend women, usually single mothers, and then offer to babysit their children for free. Which look, that's never a good look. Yeah, for free. Mm. He worked at hospitals and methadone clinics as a gardener and would start chatting to women who went there with young children. Which might mean that he could be targeting women in potentially like vulnerable positions as well. Yeah, I think that was part of his mm. shtick, especially at the methadone clinic. Some mothers apparently found out about his abuse of their children and were okay with it because he was a free babysitter. Gaida told a psychologist about one mother. He said, She was bad. I was screwing her two kids, and she asked me to do it to her after I'd been doing it to them. Wonder if this was friend B's mom. Mm. Just saying. We actually know that friend B told her mother that Gaida was sexually abusing her in July of 1986, the month prior to Samantha's disappearance, and the mother doesn't do anything about it. Even after Samantha went missing, she went to console Samantha's mother and still didn't tell the police about Gaida. If she had, a lot of children could have been saved from harm. What a witch. She's a witch. Uh, and I can't believe uh, nothing happened to her. She didn't, I as mean... As far as I know, like, nothing happened to her. Maybe not enough to... You know how you can get charged for obstructing yeah, the course of justice? Like Was aiding, that not it? aiding a criminal or something. But I don't think anything happened to her because... I don't know, she never talked, and we can't generalise and be like, she's such a horrible person, maybe she had some some issues happening, maybe she had other things going on, but damn, she does seem like a witch. Mm. Doesn't give me much sympathy for her. After establishing a relationship and getting close to the children, Gaida would drug them with tamazepam, which has the brand name Normacin, which is a benzodiazepine. Well done. Thank you. Um, which is like a sleeping pill. He would mix it with Coca-Cola, and once they were sufficiently sedated, he would take their clothes off and take photos of them as he abused them. This happened to Samantha in 1984 and 85. 
The photos that were found in Guider's storage unit by Task Force Harrisville were all from one night in 1985, where Guider admits that the two girls in the pictures were present with Samantha, so that one photograph which couldn't be attributed to either girl must be, by inference, of Samantha. There were also several slides missing from the series. I'm assuming they know they're missing because they have, like, numbers? They must be all numbered? I don't know much about film cameras. Me neither. We can maybe infer that these photos would identify Samantha and that Guida had thrown them out. But if any of my law school friends listening, anyone that's done evidence, you'll know that if you've got to make that inference, it's not enough. Like, the evidence isn't good enough. You need to get more. You need that direct thing that will link him. What I can't get over is that you're saying that the thousands of photos were all from one night? Yeah. That's... That's what it seems Holy like. Crap. At least the ones... Of those two girls. Right, I'm not sure right, if all right, right. of the pictures in there were... But they must have been. He went off. He went off, girl. Yeah. How many films are in a roll? 400? I don't know. But it could be of other kids, couldn't it? Maybe, and they just never identified them. They Possibly. couldn't identify them, so they couldn't charge. Anyway. From all the information they have, prosecutors are able to reconstruct a possible chain of events of Samantha's disappearance. On the afternoon of the 19th, Samantha is known to have walked down to the local shops. The prosecution theorised that Gaida had met her at the shops, perhaps by chance or perhaps he knew her routine. Under the guise of taking her to hang out with her friends, Gaida offered her a lift and she accepted. She knew Gaida, so, but then again, don't get in a car alone as a kid. Yeah. That's my PSA. People didn't know that back in 1986. That's true. Gaida took her to his house and told her that her friends were on the way. That was a lie. Yeah, that was that was not happening. He offered her a can of coke laced with normacin, which she took and drank. This sent her into a deep sleep and she stopped breathing and died. He'd given her too much for her body to handle. Gaida told a fellow inmate in 1996 that the police had spoken to him about Samantha's disappearance. He said, quote, Well, I didn't mean to do it. I must have given her too much. I must have put too much normacin in her coke and she wouldn't wake up. When asked what he had done with the body, he replied, If the cops looked in Cooper Park, they might have found her around the salt bushes in that place. In 1998, Gaida confessed to another inmate that he had returned to the gravesite where he had dug up the remains and placed them in a dumpster along with garden refuse near his place of work, which was the Royal Yacht Squadron at Kiribili. One of these inmates was actually his brother Tim, who had made a deal with police that if he had got his brother to confess, he would be released early. Runs in the family or something. Yeah, Tim was in for, like, general assault. Like, a more general... Yeah, right. Gaida then changed his story again later on, and says that he actually buried her on the grounds of the yacht squadron. Police dig the area up after a positive reaction from a sniffer dog, but nothing was found at the site. The dog's handler says... The reaction was as positive as the dog was capable of showing, and the handler believes that a body had definitely been there. Investigators think he was telling the truth and that the remains had been accidentally removed when a car park was built at the site 18 months after he said he buried her, or that Gaida had moved them again when he found out that they were building a car park. Police never find the body, which is generally a pretty important part of proceeding with a manslaughter or murder trial, because without a body, how can you really know? The prosecution now have a mountain of circumstantial evidence, and they decide to go ahead and charge Gaida with the murder in February of 2001. 
The Crown knew they didn't have enough evidence to prove that he had the intent required for a murder conviction, but they went ahead and charged him anyway. Why? To try and get him to plead for manslaughter, which would essentially be an admission that he did it. Because none of his previous admissions were very good. They were a bit hearsay, a bit not very reliable. Interesting technique that the Crown has gone with here. Yeah, definitely maybe not the most ethical, but... I guess gets you kind of what you want. Got the job done. In the end. He appeared for an arraignment in June 2002, which is like the start of the trial where you plead whatever you want to plead. into your plea. Where, when faced with the possibility of going to trial for the murder of Samantha Knight, he indicated his intention to plead guilty to manslaughter, knowing that it was his defence to the murder, which was a standard non-parole period of 20 years in New South Wales. So their tactic worked. It did, but what's he gonna plead? I gave her some sleeping pills. Whoops, that's He's, manslaughter. He I pleaded guess. guilty to manslaughter, and they just they accepted it. Uh, yeah, because okay. they were like, hell yeah, yeah, that's what we wanted all along. God, he didn't need to prove it. They were yeah. just like, yep, done, cool, thanks for your time. <laughs> great, great, great work. During sentencing, Chief Justice Wood took into account the following as preventing his rehabilitation in prison, which would affect his sentencing if they didn't believe that he could. Yeah, or that he wouldn't might need a longer time to rehabilitate. Yep. Garter had reportedly been the victim of sexual assaults by his mother and a senior staff member at a boys' home, which might have been like boarding. Yeah, I think it was like a dorm. A lot of people who become sexually deviant in adulthood have been assaulted as children. However, the vast majority of people who are abused as children don't go on to hurt anyone, so that doesn't explain his actions. In this case, Chief Justice Wood recognised that, quote, literature suggests that mother-son incest may have greater emotional and other sequelae than other forms of sexual abuse. Sequelae is a new word. Yes, it means the condition which is a consequence of a previous disease or injury, or in his case, emotional trauma. His brother Tim denies there was sexual abuse in the house, saying that while their mother gambled a lot, she wasn't a bad parent. Tim confirms the sexual abuse in the boys' home, though, but that it shouldn't be an excuse. Gaida broke down when he talked about his trauma, but Tim, Tim's back in it, making yeah, more, more commentary. Probably unsolicited commentary. <laughs> he says we shouldn't feel sorry for Gaida because he doesn't have anywhere near this level of empathy for his victims. Probably justified, Tim. Mm. Thank you for your input. Other factors that were considered in the process of his sentencing included an alcohol and drug habit, which is why he doesn't remember killing Samantha, although he did overcome this in prison, which is what I assume happens, you know. Bit of forced rehab. Yeah. His offence history and the fact that we know he still carried on assaulting children after killing Samantha, so we know he wasn't afraid to do it again and that he still posed a danger. His personality disorder, depressive illness and suicidal ideation and his compulsive sexual behaviour with limited therapeutic intervention. So things in prison weren't working to fix it. With these factors in mind, Gaida was sentenced to 17 years with a non-parole period of 12, making his earliest parole date now June 7, 2014. The judge recognised that this was, statistically, a long sentence for manslaughter, but that he was driven to it by a number of aggravating circumstances and the need for the sentence to be structured to ensure long-term supervision. 
The New South Wales Attorney General opposed parole at every avenue and even endeavoured to keep Gaida in prison beyond June 2019. But there was no legal grounds and he had to be released. Probably important to note that 2019 was both a New South Wales and federal election year. Mm. So they were probably just like, let's just do something to distract from all our other policies that might be less than ideal. Anyway, there was a lot of public outrage over the fact that Guider had been in total sentenced to something like 86 years, but would only serve 23. This is known as concurrent sentencing. It's the default position in New South Wales, and unless the judge specifically directs the court otherwise, multiple sentences are generally served concurrently, so at the same time. During the process of handing down a concurrent sentence, judges must be guided by principles of totality and proportionality. We won't get into it too much, but this is very standard sentencing practice and not, quote, bewildering sentencing laws, as was reported at the time. For some reason, I thought that they would have to serve twice as hard in prison if they were doing a concurrent sentence. You'd have to prison twice as hard if you were doing, like, this two years at the same time. Right, it's like double... Double the prison tasks. Double the sweeping. More work. I don't know what you do in prison, but double it. Double. Double double bench press. Double bad vibes. But it's not. It's not. It's It's just that if you, like, have two 15-year sentences... You serve 15 years. You normally will do 15, not 30. Normally, sometimes sentences are partly concurrent and partly consecutive. So if there's, like, a cluster of, like, you know, one-year, two-year offences... They'll just group them together and they'll be concurrent. And then maybe a consecutive sentence might be like a larger offence that was also being sentenced at the same time. Yeah. So you could get like 17 years or something like that instead mm-hmm. of like, you know, 23. Just throwing numbers out there at this point. Well, actually, he wasn't there for a total of 23 years. Oh. Not, ran- not random numbers you're throwing Not this. random at all. You know your stuff. What happened during those 23 years? Well, he wasn't serving double. <laughs> I think the court should consider my proposal. Take it to the Law Reform Commission, Helen. You've got some good points. Concurrent is fine, but make them go twice as hard. (laughs) I want to say Hermione Granger was studying concurrently in the film. Which film was it? I Uh, don't know. Maybe like the Prisoner of Azkaban or something when she gets given the time turner. She has to study twice as hard. You love bringing up Hermione in this podcast. She's a great example of justice. If you want to stu- if you want to do two things at the same time, you got to do twice the amount of work. <laughs> Me at the crown. <laughs> so what exactly happens to Gaida then in jail during this time? Well, pedophiles are notorious targets in prison, and while in remand, Gaida was attacked twice. He was admitted to the prison hospital with fractures to his right leg and hand, plus numerous abrasions. During one of these, he was hit over the head with an iron bar, to which he attributes some of his memory loss about the events of Samantha's death. One of his ears was also almost torn off. So, Vincent van Gogh-ass. He was having it rough in prison. So maybe it's alright. He did get it twice as hard in prison. Maybe. He was offered the option of taking medication to reduce his sex drive. Chemical castration. In prison. That's a juicy topic. Right. But he refused this medication because he believed that it would interfere with medication he was already taking for his heart condition. Also during prison, he developed a large tumour in his groin area, which he refused to have seen to by prison medical staff because he didn't trust them and wanted to wait until he was released to have it seen to. Finally, 
this is a chance for me to share my theory about how when you do something bad, the negative chi builds up in your body and builds up in like areas associated with your negative behavior and causes like illnesses and um, like disease, abnormalities. I just think like so many people who have done something wrong will have like some sort of issue with their body like later in life, harboring all that negative chi from doing that bad thing. Checks out. Checks that's out. some that's my ancient Riz proverb for the day. In June of 2019, as he was about to be released, his story changes again. He now says that he didn't kill Samantha at all, and that his confession was made under pressure from the police and others involved in the investigation. He said this in 2019, which was almost 20 years after he pled guilty to killing Samantha. So, make of this what you will. The whole, like, he has had some weird stuff going on. The aliens, the white slave traders. It doesn't seem like he's been hit over the head with an iron bar. (laughs) It doesn't seem like he is potentially um, that sound of mind. Yeah, why would you say that when he's, like, about to be released? It was so odd because... He, he, like, said it during one of his, like, release hearings because they were trying to keep him in there, so they had to have all these hearings. And his lawyer was like, yeah, well, um, my client says he never did it. And right. this this confession was induced anyway, which is, like, a bit too little too late. So he wasn't about to be released. That was... They were considering his... Well, he had to... Yeah, it was like his release was upcoming. Okay. The... Like, but the state was trying to keep him in there. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, that makes sense, I guess, as to why he would... Yeah, maybe. ...try to do a 180. Yeah. Samantha's mother has spoken out a number of times about her daughter's disappearance and the pain that it's caused her, saying that Gaida didn't deserve to be released ever. She said she repeatedly played out the final moments of her daughter's life, wondering how she was snatched and where she was taken. She wondered... Was Samantha alive or was she dead? Did she call for me as she died? Did she wonder why I wasn't there to help her? And what kind of man wouldn't call an ambulance to save the life of a child? Yeah. That's sad. I got goosebumps just reading that out. Mm. So he's now in a halfway house, you say? Yeah, once he was released. I think by the time he was released, after all the court proceedings had gone through, I think it was like September 2019... And he was shifted into a halfway house where he is under, like, a ton of different conditions and he has to be there for five years. He has to wear, like, an ankle monitoring bracelet 24-7. He can't change his name. He can't drastically alter his appearance. He can't be in a certain radius of, like, childcare centres, schools. Mm. He's only in there for five years, so I guess he, when he gets out, he'll be 75 yeah, Ish. he'll be 75. Ugh. So, and I mean, there's that growing tumour. So right. maybe maybe nature will just take its course. Mm. Samantha would be 43 now. Yeah. And I guess she is one of those standout cases of missing children in Australia because... Yeah. I think in the 80s, we were still very, like, carefree... You know, you could just your your kid could just wander down to the shops. You would leave your children at home with this man you didn't really know because he was babysitting them, and a lot of people kind of saw this as the beginning of like 
stranger danger and teaching your kids about strangers and not, you know, just going with people you didn't really know and teaching them to talk to you about things that are potentially wrong. Yeah. In their relationships with other people. Yeah. There's a bunch of those, like, big missing children's cases Mm. from around the time, which I guess we will do later on. Yeah. A lot of the newspapers at the time would use the headline or the phrase, like, the day that Australia lost its innocence, Mm. um, which is, I guess, quite fitting Mm. of the scenario. And, yeah, I guess it was just the beginning of, like, people getting these ideas. You could just, like, take kids and you could hurt kids and stuff like that. Or maybe it just became more visible. I'm not sure. Maybe it was always going on. Well, we never know. And I guess the story still sits as kind of unfinished to me. Potty was never found. Mm. Michael is a cooker. Guider, sorry, is a cooker. Yeah, now says he didn't do it. What yeah. if he's telling the truth there? The mum is still alive and thinking about it. The this... mum is like, she's like, I've never gotten to properly like say goodbye to my daughter. Mm. This case is not finished. It's kind of not, yeah. It's not looking great, but it's not finished. <laughs> yeah. I hope something maybe even could come up. Yeah. It would be nice to have a little bit of um, a resolution. Mm. So that pretty much wraps it up for today's case. Definitely a bit of a, a sad one, a bit of a heavy one. So go take some time out for yourself and hug your kids close. Mm. There are pros and cons, I guess, to not getting visual information from listening to a podcast. I'm one of those people who, like, after I listen to an episode, I just run off and search everyone and see what everyone looked like and whatever. But Samantha Knight, she looked like the sweetest little girl. Like, she gave off, uh, she gave off to me at least, like, these John Bonet Ramsey vibes because she had, like, blonde hair, big eyes, big smile. Yeah, it was like if John Bonet didn't do pageants. Yeah, and she was Australian. If she was just normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which kind of, I mean, if you go see a pic of her, which it kind of makes the whole case a lot sadder because. You know. Yeah, she looks so friendly and <sighs> kind and trusting. Yeah. I guess we'll have posted some info and some pics of this on our Twitter and Insta. So, you know, if you want to go have a look at that after, you know, go for it. Anyway, thank you for listening today. We're trying to cover as many different types of cases as we can. Yeah, this was a bit of a different one. We haven't really done one of these yet. Yeah, Missing Kids 1. I was like, we should do one of those and... Here we are, we've done one. But, you know, any other different ideas, any other cases, mm. feel free to drop us a line. Yeah. DM us on Insta, email us. And tweet us. BadAppleThePod anywhere at gmail.com, Twitter, Insta, yeah. wherever you fancy. Let us know. Yeah. See you next week. Bye.